If you're just joining us, uh, or if spring break has messed with your mind uh, and you have forgotten all that has been done so far, uh, we are working through our series on building belief and the right reading of scripture. As we celebrate 500 years since the Reformation, we thought it would probably be a good idea to go back and uh, look at church history, look at different ways of reading the scripture so as to inform our own reading uh, today in a society and in a time and place where we have all, I think, lost quite a bit uh, of our motivation and our understanding on how to really make scripture an essential part of informing our belief system. It can kind of be like a badge uh, on our uh, badge thing, (laughs) sash, Um, among many others. And uh, I think that hopefully, if nothing else, this series has at least made you realize how little you go to the scripture to inform your beliefs. Uh, How indirectly the scripture informs your belief system through your Christian faith, tradition, talking through other people. But when it comes to directly allowing the scripture to speak into our lives and allowing the voice of God uh, to reveal things to us that we can possibly understand without it, uh, many of us are seriously lacking in uh, our faith. And so the whole point of this series has been to get you reading, get you thinking, and uh, we've kind of shown you each week what we'll be covering and give, gave you the topics. Right now, we're still kind of in the early part of church history. This will be the last sermon we preach on the early church fathers. And if you don't know much about the early church fathers, maybe you didn't grow up in a Greek Orthodox background or a Catholic background, and you think of them as those old guys that had a lot of weird things to say about the scripture, Um, I'll I'll try to, to, the best I can in a very fair and impartial way, tell you that a lot of what we believe today, we owe to those early church fathers who tried amidst their culture, just like we do, to make sense of God and of the scripture. They spent a lot of time studying things and understanding things. And while Uh, They didn't always live up to their own expectations or standards, just like we don't. They have a lot to offer us, a whole lot to offer us in terms of really understanding our faith and informing us of uh, of how to read the scripture. And so, um, anyway, I just want to put a plug there because I think sometimes it's very easy for us Protestants to talk about the early church fathers in really negative ways, and yet there would be no Reformation without the early church fathers. Calvin, Zwingli, all of those folks relied heavily on reinterpreting the early church fathers to get out of the Roman Catholic tradition uh, that had become really widespread in their, uh, uh, their localities. So anyway, early church fathers, they're pretty great. Um, okay, I don't have my journal either, and that's where my notes are. Really struggling this morning. I, I apologize. It's spring break. I did a lot of relaxing last week, and so I'm completely unprepared for this sermon. Thank you, Ben, for bringing me. You want to just swing it to me? You know, uh, I might be able to catch it and impress everyone. No? All right. So today we're talking about the early church fathers and uh, science in the Bible, all right? Now, I am not in any way going to uh, preach a comprehensive sermon on science and faith, primarily because that's way too difficult. Uh, but the Northeast Garland Church has been in the midst of a series. I have not listened to any of it. I don't know how long it's been, maybe four or five weeks. Uh, any of you know? Are anybody visiting from the Northeast Garland Church today? No, I see some folks from other churches, but okay. 
Uh, well, anyway, if you're interested, get on the Garland Northeast webpage, and uh, they have been doing uh, some really targeted sermon series on faith and, and, uh, and science. So if that's something you're super interested in, go for it. I'm just going to give you two pretty basic ideas and quickly run through them, uh, and, uh, and we'll kind of move on from there. All right, so Joshua 10, uh, 1 through 15, kind of an interesting passage, right? How many of you read it? Yeah, bad, bad people, right? It's the Old Testament, so you're thinking, oh, I probably don't need to read that this week. Who cares about that? All right, well, let's read it, because this, among many other passages in Scripture, uh, causes us more scientifically-minded uh, folks, or if we're thinking scientifically about it, to pause and say, wait, what just happened? Um, so, Joshua 10. Now, Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king. Now, this is part of the expansion, God giving Israel uh, the promised land uh, after the wandering in the desert and things like this. And so uh, this, this section of scripture is also where we get a lot of our very offensive passages uh, where Christians don't really like to work through the parts where people are being completely destroyed and all that other stuff. Uh, I will reference a sermon series we did no, I don't remember when it was. Maybe this summer, maybe last summer, where we talked for about four weeks just on this idea of what to make of the Old Testament passages where God seems to be a monster. Um, so if you're interested in that, go back and look on our website. You can, uh, you can look at that. But we're not going to talk about that uh, today. So he and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city like one of the royal cities. It was larger than I, and all of its men were good fighters. So, at, so uh, basically, Gibeon had made a pact with Israel uh, that they were going to work together and blah, blah, blah. And so this sort of frightened these five kings. All right. Um, so Adonai, uh, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Purim, king of Jeremoth, and uh, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. So then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gigal. Not Gigal. That can't be right. <laughs> Got to be Gilgal. That sounds a lot better, right? But saying it fast, it does look like Gigal. Um, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory uh, at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horon, and cut them down all the way to Zekah and Mekiah. Should have practiced this. As they fled before Israel on the road down from that place to that place, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky. And more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Okay, that is a crazy hailstorm. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon over the valley of that place. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. It is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Okay, great. 
So, um, without discussing, and we're not going to discuss all of the various viewpoints on what exactly is happening with the sun in Joshua, although I assure you there are at least seven, some more uh, interesting and and maybe arguable than others. In fact, just two years ago, uh, researchers at a Jewish school, I can't remember where, proved, according to them, without a doubt, that there was a total eclipse of the sun during this time period, and that's what Joshua was referring to. Um, That is one of the the viewpoints. Another one of the viewpoints is that somehow Earth decided instead of a 24-hour spin, it was a 48-hour spin. Some said that it's a mirage, and that he's just simply seeing uh, something, and the uh, uh, points of view go on and uh, lots of different ideas about this. But this has long been one of those passages that's troubled a lot of people uh, who want to think about the scripture scientifically. And it should. And there are plenty of them, guys. A lot of scriptures. Uh, the things like people living for a long period of time. I mean, some of us probably have three or four that we just like to ignore uh, and hope never come up in conversation. So, um, My goal today is simply to kind of make two appeals in regard to science in the Bible. The first one being to those of us who are pretty modern-minded or maybe a time in our life where we're modern-minded, meaning that we really like to think about things through a scientific lens. We're very skeptical of things we can't prove or see. And then those of us, and I would say probably we have both of these mentalities within us, who tend to be more postmodern and are kind of okay with non-scientific explanations of the world. We tend to just sort of go with what works for us at any given time in our life and whatever sort of matches up with our personal experience, all right? And so I'm going to make two appeals, uh, each one to that kind of thinking. uh, And uh, and yeah, that's what's what's up today. Here we go. You ever been caught up in an argument uh, and you kind of catch yourself about midway through the argument and you realize you've completely lost any sort of bearing on what you're talking about. Words are just coming out of your mouth and you even hear the words coming out of your mouth and you're like, what are we talking about right now? If anybody heard what we were talking about, they'd be like, this is not understandable. What are they, this is the weirdest conversation. This doesn't make any sense. It has no bearing. It's just an attempt to basically feel good about trying to be right about something. I make the joke a lot in my classes that, you know, we make fun of people for going in rural areas to the local witch doctor to get things uh, healed or to um, find answers to questions. And yet for many of us, Google is the local witch doctor. We get on Google and we try our best to basically prove our point, even if, and I won't use the exact website that I use in my class because it's not uh, rated uh, G, Um, but let's just say misinformation.org, okay? Even if that's the source we're getting it from, we're fine so long as we can prove our point in the argument and in the conversation. Well, these kinds of people are talked about a lot in the New Testament. Particularly, Paul uh, refers to them as false teachers, people who love to quarrel over arguments, love to talk about theories and ideas, and really enjoy sort of taking power over others through that. Uh, I see that in myself um, a lot, and thankfully, um, the Spirit keeps my false teaching, hopefully, to a minimum. Um, But 2 Timothy 2 is one of these passages where Paul is talking to Timothy about not letting false controversies and uh, things that just aren't that important to be discussed because people have a tendency to Uh, what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, and this is my first point, uh, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It's one of my favorite passages. I quote it a lot in my 
uh, classroom when I'm talking about uh, being humble with our understanding of the world. A lot of you realize or know this, that in the last month we have a shop. You've all, uh, many of you have tried to come there. All the girls have said, oh, this is a scary place. Um, literally every single one, this is a scary place. Uh, well, it's not a scary place, Melissa. Just because it's a bunch of warehouses. Okay, let's say it was cool. And Leanne, I don't remember if she said it was a scary place, but also she was with Sergio, so does that, uh, I don't know. Uh, gender roles, I don't know, that's, that's interesting. Anyway, it is a scary place. It's a whole lot of men and warehouses and old cars and creepy things, okay? Um, but there is this neighbor of mine who is there all the time, and he is brilliant, okay? I mean, he makes me ashamed of the skills that I have. Um, he is so brilliant, and he works on... 80 to $100,000 uh, hot rods and trucks for millionaires, and it just does it all. Does engine work, he does paint, he does welding, which in my world in the trade, you usually do one of those things really well, or you do none of them well, like me, but like a little bit of it. He does all of them well, and he really, I mean, it's shameful. And what's even worse, guys, is he's a super humble and nice guy. Like, at least if he was really good at what he did, and he was a total jerk, or if he was humble and nice but really not good, you can take either one of those, right? But to be as brilliant as he is and to be as friendly as he is um, is just, it blows my mind. I remember being in, um, my, doing my grad work, my PhD, I wrote my dissertation, which is, you know, this kind of long paper. And I constantly wanted to use big words and be impressive. And I think I've told this story before, but my... Um, professor who's pretty well known in my field, he's the kind of number three guy at UTD, uh, finally was just like, at what point are you going to learn that, you know, uh, arrogant people are not the best people in their field? It's the people who are humble who are usually the best in their field. And just looked at me and said that, and I'm kind of like, what, what do I do with that exactly, you know? I've tried to impress him this entire time, and all of a sudden, my uh, facade just comes crashing down. So I mention both of these because both of them to me are great examples of knowledge puffs up, love builds up, is that knowledge and our pursuit of wanting to know things and prove things and understand things has this real sort of crazy side effect, and that is that it makes us feel like we know things are important and gives us quite a bit of arrogance. Paul in that same passage says, anybody who thinks they know doesn't yet know as they ought to know. That is one of my favorite lines uh, because it's something that I need to remember over and over and over again. That there is this measured humility that comes from people who really know their stuff or at least know that stuff is too hard to understand uh, are humbled by that. And those of you who are highly educated or in the process of being educated, I would say as someone who's experienced this myself, be very, very careful to you know, not yet know, but be okay with not knowing a lot of things. It's really important. But when we do come across these instances or times in our life where we're faced with like a situation where we don't know a lot or we feel out of control, a lot of us have these sort of programmatic responses, right? At least I do. Mine is generally just to talk a lot and try to overwhelm the other person with words. Um, particularly if you use big words, I've learned from philosophers, people can very quickly feel like they don't know anything, even though the words that you're using, you know, a lot of times have absolutely no meaning. Um, You've just kind of made them up. And if there's one thing academics are really good at is just totally making up words. And I think that the general public might not know this, but a lot of academics, they really do. They just make up words. 
And then they assign definitions to those words that only people in their academic community know. It's crazy. But they, you know, okay, whole other thing. So we might feel fear, shame that we don't know. Sometimes it's where we submit out of like, oh, this person is so much smarter than me, so I better just like stay silent. Uh, me words, anger, anxiety, competition, the list sort of goes on. There's this really cool field in um, psychology, kind of, it's really decision-making, called heuristics. And I've mentioned it before because it's like, I think my favorite thing that I've ever studied in college. And heuristics are just errors in our thinking, predictable human errors in our thinking. If you've heard of the term risk aversion or attribution bias, confirmation bias, availability bias, anchoring bias, and the list goes on and on and on and on of these predictable ways that we respond to what we uh, perceive as a risk, okay? And that make our judgment cloudy or incorrect or off kilter or whatever that is. Availability bias is the tendency we all have to think that we're going to you know, be killed in a hurricane uh, or, or, or our kids are going to be um, you know, uh, kidnapped, things like that. Rather than paying attention, availability just means the availability of information we have. We tend to assess risks based on that rather than actual risks, right? Like heart disease and cancer and some of the stuff that's not, you know, most of us don't think about. Uh, anchoring bias, the idea that we want some traditional past thing to anchor into to feel good. Confirmation bias, which is what I'm going to talk about a lot today, which is the idea that in confirmation bias, we play this really cool game in my class where I give them a number combination, all right? And I say, you know, two, four, eight, that's my number combination. I learned this game online from a guy that, uh, that teaches a lot of this kind of stuff, and it's really pretty cool. And so the whole class has to come up with what is the pattern for the number combination, two, four, eight, right? So immediately they start thinking of complex things. Oh, well, it's doubling, oh, exponential, oh, this, that. And I give them three guesses and three guesses alone, but an unlimited amount of experiments, meaning that they can give me their own number combination Okay, and I'll tell them, yes, it fits the pattern, no, it fits the pattern, and an unlimited amount of those, but only three guesses as to what the pattern actually is. And this game always plays out the exact same way. Okay, people will end up guessing what they think the answer is three times, and then they lose. And it's always more complex. They don't use their unlimited number of attempts to try to experiment. They just want to immediately get to the guess. And this is sort of like the perfect proof of confirmation bias, is most of us, when we search for an answer to a question, we already have an idea what the question is, and we look for sources to confirm what it is we already believe. We all do it. It's just one of our heuristics, errors in our shortcut, or errors in our thinking, shortcuts in our thinking. Why do we do it? Well, you could talk to you know, evolutionary psychologists about that, who knows, but the main idea is we obviously want answers. We feel more comfortable with answers than we do with questions. We just do. It's natural to us, right? So in confirmation bias, we seek to find the answer that we already sort of set out. This is why good science always starts with a literature review or some kind of background research. This is one of the main things missing in popular books today, is they don't have a literature review. They don't have something, and if any of you have written a paper before, literature review is that first part where you write, here's what everyone else has written about this, and I'm going to kind of work off of that, find some niche, confirm it, whatever else. But if I don't have any of that, then I can just reinvent the wheel and no one has any bearing and I can confirm what I set out to uh, uh, confirm in the first place. But that literature review hopefully gives us some great informed hypothesis about what it is that I think it's going to be possibly. And then I'm open to whatever that ends up saying. One of the most, uh, uh, I think, 
endearing things about Stephen Hawking, who died this last week, or maybe a week ago, I can't remember, is that in his dissertation, he set out to disprove the very thing that made him famous while he was in college. All right? We're still actually kind of don't understand this whole uh, thing with black holes and, and whatever today, but he, in his dissertation, set out to disprove the very thing that he himself had proven before. That's good science. He was a great scientist. And although many Christians sort of veer clear of him because he's not overtly Christian, well, excuse me, not at all Christian, um, we, we, I think, got to respect the kind of scientific integrity that came out of a lot of the work that he did. And that confirmation bias uh, was something that he seemed to be able to keep at bay. I think that's pretty cool. So, I have a quote for you, and this comes from um, Augustine, who wrote in the 4th, 5th century. He was kind of one of the last church fathers, and uh, one of the ones that uh, a lot of, uh, uh, obviously, Roman Catholics rely on still to inform a lot of their thinking. Uh, a long predecessor of Thomas Aquinas and all that good stuff. But I love this quote. All right, you ready for it? If he thinks his view of nature belongs to the very form of orthodoxy, or is orthodox, okay, and determines to obstinately affirm something he does not understand, all right, great harm is done, not that an ignorant individual is derided or made fun of, but that people outside the household of faith think our sacred writers held such opinions and that writers of scripture are unfairly criticized and rejected as unlearned men. Now, what he's ultimately saying there, and this is back in the fourth century, is that when people, Christian, set out to prove the very things that they want to believe, people don't just say, hey, that's an idiot. They say, hey, all Christians and all Christian thinkers must believe that same way. We set out a path uh, uh, or a model that people can easily attribute to all these people who have come before us. Particularly when, like he says, we're so obstinate that we have to affirm this is the only way of believing this and this is what you have to think. And guys, that's, that's way back when we had really no great scientific understanding of the world. Our early church fathers understood this as being a huge and important obstacle for a lot of people outside of the community of faith. That people weren't really looking at the world uh, from the perspective of wanting to learn and know things and understand things, but were simply trying to prove what everyone sort of already believed around them. And that this really put the community of God in uh, disrepute, that people just were easily, easily able to reject a lot of the claims uh, of faith that these men were making when their science was pretty poor and, uh, and had no real uh, basis, and they were arguing things that they didn't understand. So, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. I'd love to talk more about that, but don't have just a ton of time, so I'm just going to say a few things. <laughs> My stupid illustration for this is, would you rather live in a house or in an air balloon? Um, no, this is not the movie Up, so you don't have the option for both. <laughs> You have to choose one or the other. Obviously, you don't want to live in an air balloon. That, that's, this has no windows. Um, it's just the main thing. Uh, but an air balloon deflates at some point, right? It doesn't have 
great walls. It doesn't, it's not, you know, it might be fun for a while, maybe. I don't know. It also be hot. I, yeah, this illustration's breaking down. Um, the idea is when our world is based on knowledge, particularly knowledge that we don't understand, we just sort of puff up what it is we think we know and the reality around us. And at some point, that's going to crum- uh, come crumbling down. That's unless we take our air balloon like far away from anybody who can pop it uh, or nature or put it in a vacuum, and then maybe you can live there. But th- that's a whole other point. Uh, most of us, let's just say we want to live in a house, right? A house that's well-built, that has walls, that's built up. Paul is saying that the only way to do that in your life is to have love and love for people and to be able to apply that love that goes beyond just knowing stuff, okay? And I want to talk about that uh, in just a moment. So here's what I would say about this. Who benefits from this knowledge that I have? That, I think, is the question we've got to ask ourselves when in the pursuit of knowledge or in our understanding of knowledge is who really benefits from this? It's like that old lady, uh, you know, who tells you all these death stories when you hang out with her, maybe your grandma, or you know, all she wants to tell you is all the people who've died around her recently, right? Like, who's that benefiting? I mean, maybe in a kind of side way, maybe she's kind of wanting to deal with her own possibility of, of death, and you need to talk through that, and maybe that's good. But when you've got that one person who always wants to share the terrible story with you just in the middle of dinner time, you're like, wow, thank you, that's so great. Um, what, how did that knowledge benefit me, right? Oh, my goodness. I watch American Greed. It's one of my favorite. I really pretty much only watch two shows, all right? I mean, this might maybe, yeah, American Greed and 48 Hours. It's really strange, right? I literally only watch those two shows, okay? And The Wire is a show I watched a long time ago, okay? <laughs> Been there, done that. I'm, I'm gone. And unfortunately, the, there's been three episodes so far in this most recent season. The first episode was of this guy who hiked up the price of HIV AIDS medi- uh, medication 5,000%. Okay? Now, he's in jail in jail for 20 years and deserves every bit of it, but um, who does my knowledge benefit? Right? I mean, we can look at a lot of science today and see that a lot of science has actually been used to harm people. Our knowledge of things has been uh, used to harm people. Even in, in a capitalistic society like our own, often when whole, um, you know, the economy shifts or changes, it's those rich people who already have money, who already have a sense of what's going on that take advantage of that, and then we end up 30 years later where we're at now, where our society is completely split between the rich and poor. Well, that knowledge, where, who does it benefit Scientific knowledge can be a wonderful thing, but it can be just as devastating. And science, just like religion, okay, isn't any more based on truth when people are dealing with it. They have their own agenda, their own things mixed in. There's politics, and there's a whole lot of other uh, things that are going on there. Um, But knowledge can do great things. I remember being at UTD, and uh, uh, I don't remember if this is my story or someone else's story, so I apologize. I'm always afraid of telling stories and then someone in the room is like, wait, that was me. Um, but I remember we did a pizza theology really early on, but this was before we were doing pizza theology, and we did it about creation. And I remember a kid coming, and he was kind of on the fence of faith, and, you know, again, I, I really can't remember exactly who this is, although I have two people in mind. <laughs> it could be either one of them or none of them. And... Um, Basically, doing this creation, he kind of grew up in a fundamentalist home, pretty much thought the young earth, the 6,000-year deal, was kind of the only way you could think about it, just couldn't accept that. And as we went through and talked about how there are some really different ways of viewing this, 
uh, it kind of opened up some, op- uh, some doors for him to actually believe in faith. And so that's the kind of power that knowledge has if dealt with correctly and, pro- and properly, is it can open up, faith open up doors for people. I remember being in India in 2005 and how many AIDS orphanages there were. And literally these orphanages were just people who had gotten rid of their kids because they thought they were gonna contract AIDS by touching, uh, holding, hugging, just being in the same breathing space as uh, uh, one of these children. And unfortunately, and you can imagine the pain that goes with that. It's not like these you know, people want to give up their kids, but they're thinking these kids are going to be a death sentence for them. But how a little bit of knowledge, which is what these HIV orphanages were doing, going around from village to village, helping explain exactly how you can get HIV or AIDS. A little bit of knowledge can have amazing results in terms of turning the course of someone's life, or it can be absolutely devastating when it's wrong. And so knowledge itself is never... Uh, a, a bad thing, I don't think. But we got to recognize that knowledge has a tendency to puff up and that love is the thing that controls whether knowledge is used for good or uh, not used for good, uh, as it turns out. But we certainly don't reject knowledge. Uh, we allow uh, our love to, uh, to build that up uh, and to make it appropriate and according to other people's needs, not our own. Yes, I know a lot of times, even when I share stuff, it's easy for me to share stuff because it's impressive or because I want people to think something of me. But it takes the really humble and trained person led by the Spirit to take the knowledge that we have to really use it for someone's benefit and to use it for their good. Um, and, woo, man, that's just hard. i uh, very convicted, so I'm going to move on to the next point. Um, <laughs> So that was to you modern folks, those of you who are sort of scientifically minded, or maybe you're at that stage, or maybe there's a piece of you that's that way, I don't know. We all have sort of our expert fields that we love to kind of spout off about. Um, So maybe you just need to hear that, uh, and yeah. Okay, postmodern folks. This one's a little bit more challenging, all right? And these points are really kind of not related, other than I think they're two ideas that relate to uh, our reading of the scripture and, uh, and science, okay? This is uh, the point, so the first point was knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Second point here is God has made it plain to us. In Romans 1, Romans 1, 2, 3, I mean, Romans itself, the entire book is complicated, but the first couple chapters always throw me for a loop. We're going to do a worship activity uh, related to this in a moment, but this whole idea that what's plain to us, God has made plain to us, and so that we're without excuse. You guys know the uh, scripture reference today. Uh, I'm referencing there uh, Romans 1, 14 through 32. Do we need to read it, or do you, yeah, read it? Got a pretty good idea of it? Read it? Yeah, so let's just read it. Why not? Church, read the Bible. Uh, Romans 1, 14. Uh, So, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel, also to you who are at Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. From the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. 
Oh my goodness, this passage, as it, if people try to make it out to be really simple, it seems very dense, and it's like, what is he talking about? As a total side thought here, for those of you who are at least somewhat interested in theology, a lot of, of conservative uh, theologians have made this out to be, um, this is uh, sort of uh, Paul saying that everyone has this first or general revelation from God, which means that everybody has enough in nature to know that there's the existence of God. But there's also this second revelation in Christ, and you have to have the second revelation to really have a true faith. So anyway, if you're into that, great. If you're not, this is a lot where that, uh, that system of theology kind of comes from. So what the heck does it mean plain to us? Well, this is one of those examples where it possibly could be helpful to learn what the word is here in Greek. And the reason is because maybe plain in our language isn't exactly the plain that Paul was trying to use in his language. Plain to us, at least to me, means ordinary or, or maybe easy. Simple might be kind of getting at the idea. But if you read the King James or the NASB or the NRSV, they're going to use words like showed, revealed, manifested. And plain has a tendency to, I think, make it kind of incumbent upon us to see this stuff, like we should just know this. And certainly there's an aspect here in the scripture of that. But I think the, the brunt of the, the scripture, at least in my mind, is saying God has intentionally revealed these things to you. Just open up your eyes and see them. And there's a little bit of a difference there, I think, in emphasis on whether this is something I should just be kind of finding it everywhere and really going out and, you know, or is it God has revealed this stuff, just open up your eyes and see how simple it really is to see who he is. Um, but still, that, that blows me away, right? Because we like to talk about the mystery of God and how hidden God is and all these other things. But somehow Paul is saying that God has made himself plain to us, particularly through the things that he has made, and that we suppress the truth by our own wickedness. So, that leaves us in a, a situation where I think this is kind of uh, difficult to understand. And the reformers trying to make sense of this whole thing, okay, of nature and science. And the Reformation age, if you remember, was like a period where a lot of scientific discovery was happening, right? And there's a couple primers on this. Number one, I really don't think a lot of this would have happened had not the Reformation uh, been a big part of what, what today we speak of negatively as the humanist sort of revolution but basically believing that people can discover a lot of things that are really important about the world around them, all right? Because if you think about this, if you th think Greek on creation and on nature, what is the point of creation? It's simply supposed to be images or uh, in shadows of another reality far off. So creation is sort of this less than thing. We still talk like this a lot when we pretend like in heaven we're going to be with harps and clouds and wings and there's this like super boring place where all we do is worship all day. Don't pretend like you like that idea. I heard you all singing that last song, and it was like a dead as a doorknob. <laughs> I mean, I was sad to just be amidst the group with how... Is that even a song? I don't know. But I've noticed this weird trend in our church where after sermon worship is somehow much more like engaged in, you know, pre-sermon worship. What is that about? Are you tired? Even in the coffee yet? Do I, you need me up here to wake you up? What is happening? Anyway, if that's how heaven is, okay, I won't say what I was about to say, but <laughs> just say that sounds awful, all right? So anyway, 
the Greeks' perspective on creation was to see it as sort of lower than and as nothing near as good as this eternal state. But Protestants rejected that idea. The Reformation rejected that idea and used this passage in particular to be able to say, wait a second, we see everything of value and can, God can be revealed to us through this wonderful creation he's made. And the creation itself is eternal and not going away, not some soul or spirit that I have, uh, and therefore we ought to probably take um, more seriously the things around us uh, that, uh, that God ha- has created for uh, our understanding of him. So whether you, you quite catch up with that or like that idea or whatever, I'm um, just uh, giving you a, pr- a little bit of prep here. Uh, the reformers went so far, guys, as to call creation the second book of Christians. A number of reformers, men who would actually be, end up becoming scientists, guys like Galileo, uh, thought of creation as the second book of Christians, as on par with the Bible for teaching us the authority of God in the world around us. Now, maybe that's too far, I don't know, but you can get a sense that this was a little bit more complicated than a whole bunch of backwoods Christians not liking science, okay? That, that's how this debate is often portrayed today, but that was never how it was, and that is an overemphasis on the division between the two because that sounds good. Uh, it reminds me and parallels a lot to me with uh, uh, civil rights in the U.S. We talked about this in one of our classes, but the civil rights era among black leaders was completely split. You had Marvis, Marcus Garvey early on and Malcolm X on the whole really radical side, Africans only, no whites, which Malcolm X changed a lot of his thinking over his time, and I respect a lot of that. You had the Black Baptist Convention on the other side that let's not stir the water yet, let's wait, and MOK kind of in the middle of these two. Well, so these black, uh, some Christians, some Islamic folks were all over the map on terms of how to deal with the civil rights. They didn't have some unified voice. Well, Christians during the Reformation age were the exact same way. They had a large uh, uh, varying degrees of ideas about the importance of science. And so you had Christian scientists, not Christian scientists we think of today. No, no, bad, bad. Um, But then using their faith to get interested in actually studying science. One of my favorite stories, which I told Grant about, but then he told me he could only find sources uh, from young earth creationists. I know this is a true story, okay? And I'll give you good resources beyond just Wikipedia if you, if you desire them. But um, in college, Brandon helped me so much. Worship, those of you who know him, you know, uh, kind of uh, one of the main guys, as the main guy, focus, whatever, uh, prep work, who cares? He told me two things about college that really helped me. He's like, you know, don't take these like intro classes. They're so boring. Take like super specialized classes. Um, so like, instead of taking like history 101, I took like nuclear age in America. These classes were so hard, but they were so much more interesting. <laughs> instead of taking humanities, I took understanding Shakespeare and film and then understanding jazz in the 1920s. Um, super interesting classes. You had to listen to, uh, uh, someone playing music, like the whole jazz thing. And you had to know who they were just, and the instrument they were playing just from listening. And I've never been that good at music until I had to do that for like three weeks and still could never do that again. (laughs) And then he told me, hey, sciences, forget about that. If you do business route, take like dinosaurs. We had a class called Age of Dinosaurs. Um, Take oceanography, which I fell in love with. And I took three classes, two classes, two or three classes in college, I think two, 
No, no, I took three because there was a self-paced oceans class um, on oceanography. But one of the things we did talk about, and my professor was not at all Christian. In fact, one of the guys that was in my class wrote a book, uh, wrote a paper on evolution, which he failed because the teacher told him not to write a Christian viewpoint on evolution, and he did anyway. Um, stick up for his faith, good for him. Um, we learn that the father of modern-day oceanography, Matthew Mari, was on a ship one day and was really interested in the world around him, and he was sick, and his daughters read to him Psalm 8, where, where David talks about the currents underwater, which at the time, no one knew what the heck that was, and literally started studying currents underwater and found that the currents underwater were much stronger than any currents uh, in, you know, on land in terms of streams and rivers and things like that, and is the father of modern oceanography. Now, let me be clear. I don't think David was getting some super interesting knowledge. He could have been misspeaking. I don't even know. There is just as much in the scripture that's just scientifically wrong as there is right. So let's be really clear about that. But what I do think is interesting about the Reformation period was how many Christians were motivated into the scientific discoveries by their faith. And that's important because, you know, uh, we see this, this sort of overlap that really uh, unfortunately doesn't exist in our, uh, in our thinking today. Let me read you a quote uh, from Galileo. Nor does God less admirably discover himself to us in nature's actions. So nor does God less admirably discover himself to us in nature's actions than in the scripture's sacred dictions. We ought not to begin at the authority of places of scripture for scientific purposes, but at sensible experiments, necessary demonstrations. Scripture is indubitably free from error, but only on the presupposition that we penetrated to its true meaning. Folks like Galileo and other Christians were interested in what Paul would tell Timothy correctly handling the truth, whether that was the truths of the faith, the truths of nature and the sciences, correctly handling truth. And my fear in this postmodern age more than anything is that we have neglected to pay much attention to science. Uh, or maybe worse, uh, we've just accepted it wholesale without paying much attention to why we believe the things that we believe and not just being okay with, I don't know, I've not studied that enough. So many of us have these beliefs about the world that are about paper thin when you try to get anyone to explain them to you. They just are like, whoa, where did you get that funny idea? Probably would have been better if you just said, I don't know at the end of the day and been okay with the questions uh, rather than your really shallow and silly answers which in this day and age in particular, people are not okay with. <laughs> Much more okay with you saying, hey, I don't know, I have no idea. So, I want to take you back uh, to the reformers and, and say, this is where this idea came from of God's accommodation to humans. And this is an important theological idea, uh, and not to overstate it, but simply put, we don't have to believe the same things that the authors of Scripture believed about science and about their surroundings. And this was an important point of the Reformation, is to, to believe that the scripture is infallible does not mean that we have to believe what the authors of scripture believed about their surroundings, okay? Um, and this might be a really challenging idea for many of you because you think, well, why wouldn't God just give them the information they needed to know about science? Well, I don't know, why is the sacrificial system a thing in the Old Testament? It doesn't seem like a great idea. 
But is it partly God's accommodation for humans in the culture that they're in? And a better question in my mind is how does God accommodate to us now? In ways that we are absolutely heretical and unorthodox in, but he's still, through his spirit's work in our own lives, accommodating to our lack of understanding on a whole variety of topics. Uh, and so I think that, uh, that ought to humble us to understand that uh, whether you believe that or not, um, we certainly have everything, according to Galileo, that we need for faith and salvation in Christ. But does that include believing that, like many folks believed in the 15th century, that the earth is flat? Probably not. Okay? Or believing a whole host of other things, uh, and it, the list does get comical. But it's only comical in our arrogance. Uh, because, you know, what did we do to earn any of that understanding? It's not like any of us went out and actually did those experiments <laughs> or have verified them. We trust a lot. Uh, and, you know, so we're thankful now that people aren't giving us blood transfusions of, like, pig's blood or milk, which was as common as 125 years ago. Yeah, let's take the milk, let's take the blood out of his body and replace it with milk. <laughs> Probably will work. All right? Or the eugenics movement that sought to try to prove that certain races or ethnicities were naturally more intelligent than others, where we get our words moron and idiot from. Or all of the other terrible things that have happened as a result of science in the last hundred years. Uh, we certainly don't need to believe or know uh, and prove all those things on our own. We simply need to understand and be humble about those things. And more than any of that, keep an appreciation of nature and of science that constantly motivates us to try to figure out who God is. And in this Romans passage, which we're about to do this activity, and it's probably going to be super weird, and I don't even know what is going to happen, and um, where we'll understand his eternal power and divine character. I don't know about you guys, but on my way here, seeing those smelly trees that always come out first in the spring. I hate them. They're pretty, but they smell terrible. Didn't give me some appreciation of God's divine character or eternal power. So whatever Paul is speaking of here, we, trying to understand it isn't going to be immediately apparent. And yet, if those things should be somewhat plain to us, uh, we might have to kind of uh, interact with our world in a way that we don't tend to interact with it if we're going to regain some of this appreciation. So what to do with Joshua here then? Uh, well, what's plain to me is God intervened on behalf of Joshua's army for the sake of Israel. And is it any less miraculous that a mirage or an eclipse or a 48-hour day happened? I don't know. I don't have a real good theory on it, to be honest with you. I, 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 probably the one theory I don't agree with is that the earth stood still, because that would be catastrophic uh, for, for a lot of natural processes, okay? But if it was a 48-hour day or if it, the mirage seems a little tricky on God's behalf, but then again, the purpose of the whole thing was to give them more daylight to fight. So maybe that's what it was. I don't know. I don't need to know. I don't have to have a theory about it. And I don't need to be able to explain it, I don't think. I simply need to understand the plain meaning of the text and that it says that God does act on behalf of people, particularly to do to good in the world. And that's pretty good news, I think. So I think one thing that this has left me with, at least is uh, sometimes we ask the question, and maybe it's not always a bad question, okay? You know, what has God revealed to you lately? But from a postmodern perspective, I think in part, what we're ultimately saying is sort of like, you know, 
what has he revealed in my sort of narrow view of the world? How has he acted on my behalf? Maybe this passage in Romans and just this idea of what's plain to us should make us ask the question, how have you discovered God's revelation lately? Because what it does is it changes the emphasis from the Spirit's just going to come teach me something as I live to me actually doing something more active in intending to discover what's already been revealed to me. And I think that can be pretty hopeful. Uh, if I'm not expecting that it's, goes, you know, how many times have you sat in a group and someone, what has God revealed to you lately? People try to rack their brain, you know? <laughs> like as if God's not working. Or if it's, you know, I understand that the, the skepticism, which I think is healthy, of trying to attribute things to God that may not really be God's, that's okay. But if we always sit back and it's like, I don't know, an Easter egg hunt where I'm watching Netflix and someone's just kind of throwing eggs around my chair and I'm supposed to just pick them up and eat Skittles. That doesn't sound like a very good adventure. But that's how I I think we treat the spirit when it comes to what has God revealed to you lately? Like, it's almost our point is what has he revealed to you in your daily course of life, of your normal doing whatever you want to do, and God just throws something obvious there in front of you. To me, that's not a whole lot different than the Israelites asking for signs from Jesus. Show us a sign before we believe what you know you, you have for us. Okay? And I don't know, that's a lame Easter egg hunt. Y'all remember that video? Did your teacher show you this? Where that like, you're supposed to like count how many times the basketball goes from one person to the next. And then there's this giant ape that goes across the screen. It's crazy, right? Like eight out of 10 people don't even recognize the ape. I mean, it's these people that are just taking a basketball and they're just throwing it to each other. And this gorilla just kind (laughs) of comes by. Yeah, right? And like eight out of 10 people don't even recognize it. Well, hey, listen, if that's how we treat God's revelation in our life, that, you know, we've got to, it, it's just going to, we're, we're so focused on our, yes, Austin, you have, a, you have a question? You need the link? You have a computer back there, so. Oh, the question. How funny would that be if he was like, yeah, can I get the link for that? Uh, I got a computer and I would like to watch that video. So much more interesting than what it is you're talking about. Uh, Yeah, so um, how have you discovered God's revelation lately? You know, this this goes back to the idea, and I'm not saying one's better than the other necessarily. I'm simply saying that sometimes we have an emphasis on one to the other. We expect these things to come to us in our normal course of life. But then when we ask the question, well, how did I go and actually discover something that was already there? It's a lot like the reading of scripture, right? We're constantly wanting to hear God's voice and we want him to put it in our words, in our you know, environment. And yet we have the scripture laying right next to us where we can hear his voice almost any time and in any way. It's that same kind of idea. It's the, my experience comes first, my way of looking at the world. And Grant and I were talking about this, how hard it is to come up with an activity that, uh, that's sort of like this. Uh, you know, especially in nature, we're going to send you out in a moment to like discover something, all right? I don't know what we're doing, all right? If there's one thing that we cannot be blamed for, it's innovating (laughs) and just trying random stuff. But we are, we're going to send you out to go discover something. That's all you got to do. You don't need to find God's eternal power, divine character in it, okay? Unless you're super spiritual and you already have it. And we're only going to give you 10 or 15 minutes. Now, you do not need to go outside. If you're like my wife, who literally, I kid you not, when she comes home most days, she goes and picks up all the rocks outside of our house and plays around with bugs and stuff underneath the rocks. 
she has this very healthy enjoyment of strange things underneath rocks. So discovering something, whether it is the, what the heck those smelly trees are called or why they exist, uh, or finding a bird uh, that you're interested in, or just sitting in here and researching something. I was doing this this morning because I was bored. Mateo was next to me. He didn't want to talk, so... Um, uh, and I was researching how this place used to be a power plant. In 1905, it was a steam power plant, and it gave a little bit of power to people in the square. Well, that got me researching and discovering how much... You know, Denton is the number one city for solar power? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I totally lied to you. Wind power. Which is even better. (laughs) Solar or wind? Which one do you like better? Per capita, we have more wind energy. 40% of our city's uh, energy comes from wind power. In Munster, there's something called Wolf Ridge wind power plant thing. And that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. I don't know what that means about God's eternal character or divine character, eternal power, other than he's given us, obviously, the ability to do things much better uh, when it comes to getting power uh, from the earth that's not near as devastating for it, okay? Our coffee this morning is made, I'd have to tell you the name, but it's from a co-op. They wet uh, process this in a co-op that's completely voluntary, uh, uh, it's a nonprofit. They get paid a, an hourly wage that's way better than the groups around them. It's called a family co-op, and it comes from it's uh, it's Kenyan coffee, but I don't remember. There's the actual like uh, county on there, and you can go and look at the farm's website and look at that. That's pretty cool. The fact that you get to drink decent coffee. I put a little too much water in this morning. Um, that you know someone did uh, you know worked hard for, got paid for. And you're not just, you know, consuming. Now, all the clothes you are, you know, is slave labor but, um, that you're wearing, but that's a whole other thing. Um, I'm simply just saying in all of this, I think, because maybe I've gone crazy, it's possible, uh, is that when we look around us and discover uh, just the things around us, there's a lot that we can be very grateful for, and there are things about God we can absolutely learn. Now, remember, guys, we do a lot to avoid nature, unless it's immediately nice for us. Like, I remember Grant and I were talking about people going outside today, and one of the first things I think both of us thought, well, it's not sunny. It's gloomy. (laughs) What could we possibly ever discover about God in gloomy weather? (laughs) So we use nature, or we try to get rid of it with AC and things like that. These people were living in in an environment that was much more centered in the power of nature over them. But even just the sense that we have control over that is really pretty cool and, and I think great. Um, so I, I don't know what we're doing right now other uh, than we're going to sing a song and I think Grant's going to come up and hopefully do a better job of explaining that than I just tried to do. Um, but we are going to try to uh, incorporate this in our worship. And I think the goal is for you to think this week. You do it with a group, do it with other people, have fun, that's great. Uh, you don't necessarily have to come up with some incredibly meaningful thing from this, although if you can think about that through the week or something, uh, I think that could be pretty, uh, pretty helpful and pretty interesting. But we need a healthy uh, uh, love, I think, for science and for, and for nature and for those things around us, not for the sake of uh, enjoying them for their enjoyment's sake, uh, because I think that's fine to a degree, but if ultimately it doesn't lead us back to God's character and his, and his whole putting these things into motion, uh, we miss the mark pretty heavily. I always wanted to read this inscription on Matthew Morey's 
Uh, I don't think it's on his grave. I think it's on a statue honoring him. This is that oceanography guy. Well, I kind of like it. I don't know. Uh, and then we'll close, and uh, I think Troy and his team are going to come on up, and I'll say a prayer. Matthew Mori, Pathfinder of the Seas. The genius who first scra- uh, scratched, i got to learn how to read. Yes. Scratched from ocean and atmosphere the secret of their laws. His inspiration, simply holy writ. All right, I'm going to say a prayer, and then uh, worship team, you guys can come on up. Uh, Lord God, uh, a lot of what I preached on today, I kind of don't really know what to do with, um, or how to understand in our own day and age. Um, as we get one scientific discovery, or so-called after another, trying to kind of pair the good from the bad, the stuff we should believe, from the stuff that we're simply suppressing the truth by our wickedness or all the stuff in between becomes very, very hard. Um, there's so many hot-button issues that are, have claimed scientific uh, realizations on both sides, and it's just hard to know what to do with a lot of that stuff. But I do ask God that you would make us people who, uh, like children, love to discover the works of your hands. Uh, that the things that we do see, uh, we don't take for granted, that we work to try to discover those revelations that you've given us. Uh, We see it in each other, uh, we see it in nature, uh, we see it in the storms. Uh, Certainly it's so hard to understand why so many of these negative things and things that seem bad and catastrophic are supposed to reflect your character and who you are. And I don't know what to do with a lot of those things. Um, But I would pray that you would help us see your goodness and that uh, we truly would be a people who uh, love the earth that you've created and, uh, and are constantly finding new and fresh ways to see you uh, amidst the stuff that has become mundane and ordinary in our lives. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.